Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 17th, 2016, and this is episode 1746 of the Survival Podcast. And it's also, well, it's St. Patrick's Day, so uh, wear your green with pride if you do that thing. Otherwise, it's just another day. Anyway, uh, today is also a Thursday. That means it is a listener call show, so I'll be answering your calls to the Think line. That line is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, you're not going to hear high high caller. This is Jack. What you're going to hear is a voice message. You can leave me a voicemail. It'll come to me as an audio attachment and email, and you might hear yourself on the show next week because uh, this week's calls are already in the can, and I'm about to start answering them right now. The rules to get on the show, make sure you ask your question or make your point really, really fast, like immediately. Hi, Jack, this is so-and-so. My question or my comment is, ba-doom. Then give me your details. That will get you through screening. Number two, if you're on a cell phone, make sure you have a couple bars. Number three, be in a quiet location. Don't call me from the back of a motorcycle or while some guy next to you is running a weed eater. And uh, that'll make you more likely to get on the show as well. Know what you're going to say before you make the call. Your call will go smoother. And again, make your point, ask your question. This is not being me being nitpicky and kind of a pain in the ass. This is me telling you from doing this now eight years how to do it and uh, get it done in a way that will get you on the air. Uh, next up, before we get into your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consult and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, 
I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. With that knocked out, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1746. I have uh, turning potatoes into alcohol. I have math, music, and the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And I have men in skirts. Denied. Um, of course, that's about kilts in Scotland, and Scotland's kind of close to Ireland, and there's this whole love-hate relationship there. So since it's St. Patrick's Day, I thought about reading that one. But I'm going to read the potatoes, because potatoes are Irish too, right? Anyway, this has nothing to do with Ireland, though. Turning potatoes into alcohol. Countess Eva Ekleblides of Sweden is one of the first women recognized for her abilities as a scientist. With the recent crop failures, she has been searching for ways to incorporate the newfangled potato in the Swedish agricultural plan. Potato is not new to the Swedes. The aristocracy have been growing them as an exotic plant since, eight, since 1658. But the plant is unfamiliar to the peasantry. The countess has experimented with turning potatoes into forms more familiar to the people. She has turned potatoes into flour, and she's been successful at turning potatoes into booze. You can hear the cheers across the countryside. Her next project is to convince people to actually eat potatoes, Cooked after sending her findings to the Royal Swedish Academy of Science, she'll be accepted as a member in 1748. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Potatoes took a long time to gain acceptance. Potatoes and tomatoes are related to the deadly nightshade, a poisonous plant. It took a little doing to convince people that these plants were edible. However, once they caught on as food, the plant sustained Europe and China. Some historians claim that Europe's population gains could never have been sustained without the potato. And during the American Revolution, while American colonists fought for freedom, Austria and Prussia were fighting over potatoes. 
Converting potatoes into booze seems reasonable, aside from the obvious intoxicating properties. Alcohol provides calories. It can be stored at room temperature, and alcohol is a preservative. The potato plant has an advantage over wheat because, the, because grains can be severely damaged in bad weather, while potatoes lay protected under the soil. Of course, potatoes are subject to disease. Only a few species were transported from the New World to Europe, so when disease uh, or a pest struck a crop, it jumped quickly to every field. Ireland became so dependent on the potato that when a crop failed, famine and, mit and, and uh, migration immediately followed. Yeah, um, this wasn't unique to Sweden. The king of France actually put out a proclamation that he enjoyed eating fried potatoes to get the French to begin to use the potato because they were afraid of it. And it wasn't just potatoes, it was just tomatoes as well. In Thomas Jefferson's uh, the, Gardener, the Garden Book, uh, there's a, a, a story about a man who said at like noon he was going to eat a whole basket of tomatoes in town because everybody was afraid to eat tomatoes because, again, the nightshade thing. But, you know, they would eat them cooked, but they wouldn't eat them raw. Well, he's going to eat this basket of raw tomatoes. And, like, tons of people showed up to watch him eat these tomatoes. Now, it wasn't because they wanted to see if tomatoes were really safe. They actually believed this guy was going to die. And they showed up to watch him die. And, of course, maybe you get a little bit of a stomach ache from eating too many tomatoes. But, uh, of course, we all know tomatoes are safe to eat. So there was a, a, a real struggle uh, to get the masses to accept potatoes and tomatoes as being safe to eat. They became hugely popular in Italian cooking, and of course that was because um, initially they were afraid to eat them raw. Um, one of those little uh, obscure facts about history that really did a lot to shape the world. Anyway... With that knocked out, let me remind you real quick before we get to your calls, you can help support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. If you like the work we do here and you want us to always be around, that's the way you make sure that happens. You go to the survivalpodcast.com, you click on Members, and you can sign up there. I take uh, Online, I take PayPal. Offline, I take Cash. I take Silver. I take Bitcoin. I take all kinds of stuff. I even occasionally take Barter. If you have a Barter suggestion, you can email it to me. I don't take all Barter uh, offers, but I take a lot of them. Anyway, with, uh, with that done, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Question. Is Trump running to help be a decoy to make sure his great friend Hillary Clinton makes it this time as president? Your thoughts? Thank you for the great show and the entertainment. This is Jim Lake from Boise, Idaho. Have a great day. I know what people are thinking, oh, this is a call-in show, why politics? Okay, I'm going to make a deal with you. One, I will answer this question once I actually start to answer it in three minutes flat. Number two, I'll make it fun. Number three, it's the only political question that we have today. All right, so here you go. Uh, it doesn't really matter whether or not it's a conspiracy, C-O-N-spiracy. And does anybody know where that's from, okay? Does it really matter if it's a C-O-N-spiracy or not? It's the net result. Um, but the, the reality is, if we just look at this as a spectator, this is what I want to point out. This whole election is what I'm calling, especially the federal election, this is the ass clown circus of all time. The, the ass clownery that's going to go around in this is going gonna, is gonna to take the cake. You might as well, if you're going to vote, Understand it's catharsis. It doesn't really matter. You're mathematically more likely to die in your car on the way to the polls than you are to influence the election. But if you want catharsis, go ahead and vote. Otherwise, kick back and make this a spectator sport. And just see how far your country's fallen. And, and wonder if it's enough that people will actually pick themselves up next time around and kind of 
like start actually thinking about fixing shit. Because the the fact that you're down to Sanders, Cruz, um, uh, uh, Trump, and Clinton is is an indicator that your country has lost its flipping mind. Right? There's just no hope. There's no hope. So you might as well have fun. So. The reality is, no matter how much of a dedicated conservative you are, if you're honest about it, it is very difficult for a Republican to win the presidency. All of the growing population segments, whether they're Hispanic, whether they're Asian, um, whether they're urban, inner city, all of them tend to vote Democrat. Now, it's not a judgment on anybody. It's just a, again, it's a spectator sport, guys, for me. So, they already have the deck stacked against them. So... If you put any kind of division into the system, any kind of fractionalization into what there is of the core for the GOP, you get to a point where it's highly likely that they're, they're going to kick themselves over the loss all the way. So there's a couple ways this plays out. Number one, Trump wins the nomination. Trump wins the nomination, Hillary Clinton's your next president. It's not an endorsement. Don't be a dumbass and get mad at me for it. Um, Trump loses the nomination. A whole bunch of the people that were fanatics of Trump stay home and don't vote. Clinton wins the presidency. So I think that's the net result. I think your next president Hillary Clinton. Remember, I'm the guy that said it would be a Republican strongman, and Trump fits perfectly. I may be wrong about this. I'm not sure yet. But if I had to put money on it right now, based on the math, that's the way I would, I would make my bet. Final thought. Lots of things can change in the next 60 to 90 days, and we'll see what they're going to be. Anyway, with that, I'm under three minutes on that answer, but uh, the net result is it is more likely because Trump's in that Hillary Clinton becomes the next president. Yes, I'll groan on it, too. I know it sucks, but anyway, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Neil from uh, West Tennessee. had a question about peach trees. I wanted to know what to do about frost, light frost coming in. I don't want all my, my blooms knocked off the trees already blooming uh the other thing i want to know about is what you spray your peach trees with i did not do this last year and i lost about 50 60 peaches so i uh, just wondered if you had any recommendations on that and then any other general care tips that you may have uh, appreciate it thank you um, let's start out with the good news. It is generally the case that most fruit trees, including peaches, if what you're talking about actually is a light frost, um, will not tend to drop all their blossoms or set fruit. When you get a freeze, a hard freeze, that's when you tend to have that happen. Usually these trees can handle a little bit of a light frost. Um, the best thing you could do if you know you've got temperatures coming in that are not likely to knock off your, your blossoms is if it's not too big a tree, you can cover it. Another thing you can do, and this only works if you have like one or two trees, you can do this. Go get a great big long string or two of old-fashioned um, Christmas lights, the big bulbs, the ones that are like little mini light bulbs, and put it all in your tree and plug it in overnight. And that heat will help keep the blossoms from getting completely frosted. You'll have this like radiated warmth around there. It's not something you're going to want to do a lot of, and a big tree is hard to do. But if you have a small, you know, peach tree like you're talking about for your, your, you know, small backyards and stuff like that, that's another thing that you can do to make that happen. Um, a couple things you can do to prevent this from being a problem. Number one, don't plant fruit trees in low-lying areas that are like effectively frost dams. 
I've seen a lot of times where people have like a yard and they got this really low spot and it just seems like a nice moist area, so they put a, a fruit tree down there. If you're planting in those areas with fruit trees, you need to plant trees that bloom late naturally uh, because what happens is if there is a frost, it all concentrates in that area. Cold goes down, and if, if you could actually... Um, put like a marker in the air so you could see it, like color the air, you'd watch it flow like water and accumulate down there and build up. So planting up on higher elevations with your fruit trees will help mitigate that effect. And it's interesting, you can go out in my east pasture right now, this has nothing to do with trees, but I put five berms in. And the berm that's at the highest point in the field has the most growth on it from the, the winter and early spring, and the one at the bottom has the least. Why? Because as cold flows down and accumulates against the berms, the further berm down, the more that's the case. So that's, that's another issue. Now, there's also some things that you can do to encourage your trees not to bloom too early. One thing you can do is plant them on north-facing sides of hills. This is kind of counterintuitive because you don't get a lot of sun there. But generally, a tree on the north side of the hill will blossom out and leaf out later. So if you're in like a marginal area for a tree because of this reason, that's one thing you can do. Another thing that makes a lot of sense is with organic fertilizer, fertilize your trees after, they harv after you harvest them. So after you've gotten all your fruit for the year, give it a good feeding. Trees that are low in nitrogen tend to get stressed and, and bud out earlier. Another thing you can do is kind of mow the area around your tree low, like an inch or two high um, in the spring, and then mulch that area, and that'll help keep the ground from getting too warm too fast and accelerating the tree. Um, you definitely want... To, you know, if you're not getting a lot of rain, irrigate your trees anytime the temperature is above 45. And if you do that, you'll cool the temperature in the area and you'll delay budding. So these are all, all more strategies to, you know, mitigate your problem next time around. And uh, those are kind of some of your best bets. Now, what do I spray my trees with? The only thing I tend to spray my trees with is a product called Garrett Juice uh, by Howard Garrett, a.k.a. the Dirt Doctor. Uh, it's made it's it's made commercially by a company called Medina, and uh, I buy it by the gallon, and I buy the Garrett juice with fish because it's a little nitrogen kick with it, and I mix it according to the directions, and uh, I, I spray the trees with that using a conventional like you know uh, two and a half gallon sprayer, and I spray them a couple times a year. Another thing you can spray trees with that is really shown to help them, especially spraying them early in the year, is raw milk. Um, so you can kind of look that up as to what ratios use, but generally just straight raw milk has been uh, quite beneficial. And then there is a clay product, I don't remember what it's called now though, that uh, Howard Garrett recommends to spray your trees with. Um, it's pronounced like kaolin or kaolin, it's also known as china clay. And I'll, I'll find it for you. You can put it on, and you can use that to spray your trees, and it forms a coating, a mineral coating that grasshoppers just hate. So that's another thing you can use to improve the, the likelihood of success with your trees. But I don't spray much. I let nature do its thing. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. Hello, Jack. Rick Tanaka here. Uh, my thoughts come to you, uh, you know, fairly scripted here. So if you hear me changing the pages, um, it took me a while to put these thoughts together, but... I just uh, finished listening to your interview with Larry Korn. I admire the thoughts given by both Larry and yourself 
I mostly appreciate thoughts surrounding the uh, fundamental differences between Larry's interpretation of Fukuoka's indigenous philosophy and the teachings of Bill Mollison uh, and his permaculture concept. I am glad uh, it was brought up as a polar opposite. Uh, while I appreciate the philosophy surrounding both permaculture and Fukuoka's indigenous practices, I do not practice either, although I do somewhat sway to permaculture. I, I don't know, given, uh, you know, our current, uh, landscape. Um, there was a time when I considered the natural or indigenous philosophies, uh, was to hunt and gather, and that if you wanted to cure hunger, you needed to stop actively trying to feed the starving and regain a balance population of the natural world, but uh, I no longer feel that way. This, uh, I, I, I guess I, it's because, you know, uh, given, you know, given the, the degradation to the natural world caused by traditional and modern, um, and this leads me to a question for expert council member Jeff Watt with both Masanova Fukuoka's and Bill Mollison's philosophies developing very closely together time-wise, does Jeff think that Bill's message regarding permaculture was more set to modern times where population needs an expedited recovery to the earth, uh, uh, expedited recovery to the earth due to the degradation? I would uh, think the fundamental differences in the philosophies of these two great teachers would be more about time it uh, takes to heal the earth and need to do so quickly as opposed to healing at earth's natural pace. Um, I am interested in both Jeff Lawton's and your response, Jack, regarding three opposing philosophies, hunting and gathering, indigenous natural farming, and permaculture, given the health of the current, uh, the world's current landscape. Uh, thanks, Jack. Don't care if they call you a, a bush hippie. You're my hero. First, I'm going to chastise the caller on two things. Number one, um, for months now, I've said, if you have a question for the expert counsel, email it. I no longer take voice call questions for the expert counsel. I'm not picking on you. I'm just telling you, it's not going to happen. I threw away two calls today. Didn't even listen to them because I have a question for expert counsel member delete. Um, we have a new procedure. Uh, we've been doing it now for, I think, four months. It works great. Email your questions for the expert counsel with TSPC expert in them. State your question. This is the next thing we're going to get a little bit of chastising on. Uh, at the very first thing, my question is, da-da-da-da-da-da. My reasoning, details, whatever are, it follows. Uh, so that's, that's how you ask a question. Now, because the caller clearly cares and puts so much effort into this, I'm going to answer this question for him from my standpoint. But I also play this to say, This is a 99% time where the, I never actually hear the question because I get frustrated and I delete the call. I didn't do it here because it was very clear that this gentleman put a lot of effort and a lot of thought into this. And I had a little more time this morning to do screening. But the question should have been stated up front. And that's how you do it if you want to get on the air. So this is a textbook example of in spite of the fact that I'm going to do this, what not to do if you want to get your question on the air. Now, again, I'm not really picking on the caller. I, I'm just saying if you want to get on the air, follow procedure, and your odds go way up. Now, here's my view about this. I do not debate my guests, but I find this concept that Mr. Fukuoka 
and Bill Mollison, David Holgram's permaculture are polar opposites to be ridiculous. Okay, I, I just find it to be completely, totally ridiculous. And I find the reasoning behind that is the absolute simplicity of Fukuoka and the absolute complexity of permaculture if you want it to be complex. Okay? And that creates a disconnect where people who are students of Masanobu have a feeling that this is different. And then Larry's actually a student of both. Larry's taught PDCs. Larry understands permaculture well. But the reality is, if you look at a food forest uh, put in by someone like Jeff Lawton, it looks exactly like an orchard put in by Masanobu Fukuoka. And they use essentially the same technique, specifically the growing of support species, primarily nitrogen-fixing legumes, to infiltrate carbon into the soil so that they can act as pioneer species. If you read One Straw... Uh, Masanobu basically starts out with a Sepp Holzer concept. He's dragging trees around and burying them. And after doing that for a couple of years, he goes, it ain't worth it. It takes too much effort. Plant acacias, in his instance, get them to put roots in the ground, and, and some of them get sacrificed. They, they're, they're honestly so similar. The big divergence, as Larry handled yesterday, is that permaculture in its initial incarnation did not really seek to grow grain at all. Bill Mollison couldn't get his head around how he could grow grain in a truly regenerative system. And when he saw what Fukuoka was doing, he said, okay, we can do this. Now, this is the crux of the thing. My belief is that permaculture is a method of thinking. It is not how to grow a tree. It is not how to put a food forest in. It is not how to do natural farming. It's not how to build a community. It's not any of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a methodology of thinking that leads you to design a solution based on your needs or the needs of someone you're working for or the needs of a community you're working for. That is all. So natural farming is like a, an arrow in that quiver. Uh, culture, arrow in that quiver. Okay, Terrace-based agriculture, arrow in that quiver. Aquaponics, arrow in that quiver. The, the, all of these things fall under the giant umbrella of tactics and techniques within the permaculture strategy. Because permaculture is strategic thinking. How do I create a regenerative system? Now, the concept is, does is permaculture more geared toward fixing stuff that's so bad we need to move quickly? I think so, but no. It, they're the same. Because that's exactly what the conversation Larry and I had yesterday is that when, when, when Mr. Fukuoka got on his property and tested his theories, doing nothing actually made things worse at first. And he had to figure out, well, how do I repair the damage so that I can hand things over to nature? I, I think we're talking, we're splitting hairs when we're trying to, 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 to really separate those two and to call them polar opposites. The reason I feel Larry probably does that is an allegiance to the greatest teacher that's ever influenced him in his life. Larry spent more time with Mr. Fukuoka than probably any other person, period, and certainly more than any other Westerner. So he's got an allegiance there, which is, is noble and admirable and does no harm. But it's not as different as you might be led to believe. In other words, what Larry said is that permaculture is still trying to bend nature to man's will. And I think that's a a somewhat 
I don't want to say myopic because that sounds insulting and I don't want to be insulting, a somewhat tunnel vision view into what permaculture is really all about. And I think that if we look at everybody in, in the movement of trying to grow food and repair landscape at the same time, we have factions. And they're not necessarily against each other, but they have devotion to particular methodologies or particular teachers. The Holzerites, the, the Fukuokaites, right? The Lottenites, the Molisanolians, right? Uh, the Holgramane, you know, like, and, and to me, The whole point of permaculture is really more what Jeff says. It all works. It all works. Every bit of it works. It's just a matter of what is the appropriate solution to the problem that you're trying to solve. Because this is why I find permaculture to be far more holistic. If you're in an area with enough land and enough resources and a light enough population to do natural farming the, the, the Fukuoka way, the permaculture says, by all means, do that. But it's also pragmatic and realistic. It says, okay, well, here's a suburb of people sitting on quarter-acre lots. That's not going to work there. That's not a farm. It's not a farm. It's a place where a bunch of people, it's a community. Okay, so we either say we have to do it this Fukuoka way, or there's another way. Now, That's where the difference is. That's where the polar opposites come. Because the natural farming method assumes a light population density throughout the planet and more of a horticultural um, hunter-gatherer existence for everybody. And permaculture goes, that'd be great, but it's not going to happen. So how do we do the best with what we have? And I believe that the goal that all of these things have is to restore ecosystems as rapidly as possible without doing greater damage. Now, which one does it best? I think that's so situational that I refuse to basically choose a favorite. Right? I, I love what Seth Holzer does. It's not what I do. These are different climate types, different application types, different scale. Right? I love what Jeff does, and I do some of what Jeff does and some of what other people do. And I think that we just need to free ourselves. We need to free ourselves, and, and I think that's the true message of, of Masanobu to me, that once you actually allow yourself the ability to understand what's going on and to make good decisions and be willing to accept feedbacks and say, oh, that's what that does, so I need to not do that, or I need to encourage that, that you don't need a teacher, right? You don't need a, a guide. Nature is your guide. To separate the two when the key message of permaculture is your greatest teacher is the forest, I think is not seeing the forest for the trees. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt in Wisconsin. Love the shows, as always. My question for you was regarding a neighbor. Uh, how best to approach a neighbor about buying some of his land? Uh, and I should mention, he's an occasionally um, cranky neighbor. He's in his uh, late 70s, so I guess this is, this is getting the details. Uh, so he's getting older, uh, still active, raises cows. Um, the land right now that I'm interested in buying would 
would extend my five acres down to a, a gully and seasonal stream, so it'd be about another 10 acres. It would involve a survey. Um, I would pay, be willing to pay above, you know, sort of just the marginal uh, going rate of, of an acre of cropland. So I could give them a competitive bid, but I think if I handled it wrong and pissed them off, or, uh, you know, the survey I think might be a, an issue. So I'm trying to put some thought into how to, how to approach him. I would really like this land. Um, and I don't want to even start the conversation before I've thought it through. I thought you might have some insights. I know you're, you're thinking about a similar thing with, uh, some, some property adjacent to yours. So, all right. Thanks. Love the show. Take care. Bye. Um, okay. So, if a survey's a problem, then the guy's a problem. And it doesn't make any sense. So nobody that actually was willing to sell land would go, well, I don't want a survey, because you can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. But I guess the crux of the answer here is this is how I would approach it. I would strike up a conversation. I would say, have you ever thought about selling off any pieces of your land? And just let him answer that with no way, no how, no chance. Yeah, I think about it once in a while, whatever it is. And just say, well, if you ever do, before you do, since I'm your neighbor, I would like to, to basically have first shot at it. Um, I'd appreciate that opportunity. And I'd leave it to hell alone. Because here's why. Here's what that does. That puts a little bug in his head. He starts thinking, huh, I could have money. And the older you get, the more you think, well, maybe I'd rather have this money to, to have in my retirement or whatever than to have this piece of land i got to look after and take care of. Now, if you push it, and I want this and I want that, then, then you get a resistance. So it's the same way that you generally get people interested in any idea, is you plant the seed and you walk away. You know, I mean, that. don't talk about details. Don't even really talk about, you know, but just say, you know, I've always wanted to own a little bit more land, and if you would ever be interested in selling some of the lands adjacent to mine, I would appreciate it if you gave me a first crack at it. And then shut up, right? It's sales. You, 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 you throw out basically an instant close, an assumptive close, that I'm assuming that at some point you might want to sell this stuff and leave it alone. And... That's all I would do. And I would be very humble with it. Like, I just, if you ever do, I, I would like the opportunity first because I don't want somebody buying and putting something in between us. You know? <laughs> that, that, that basically saying, I value you as a neighbor and I, I'm fine with you as a neighbor, but I don't want some third party wag coming in here. And, and what that's actually saying is, hey, you know, if you ever want to sell some of this, I'm, I'm available. I'm, I, I'm a buyer if you need it. And, and, and that's where I would leave it. Now, I would also say this. If you're thinking about farming, and you think you need another 10 acres to farm, and that's not what you said, so I'm not, I'm not saying you, you feel this way, but if you do, most people that are going to farm should be farming like a half to an acre and make that profitable before you think about anything else. Most people that go out and try to farm 5, 10, 15 acres go broke doing it because they try to, too, try to do too much. 
You find high-dollar cash crops, and you grow those, and you grow them effectively, you grow them intensively, and you develop a channel, and you put them into it. Now, if you want to graze, well, it makes perfect sense. If you want to put in silvo pasture, it makes perfect sense. But if you want to farm, you know, quote-unquote farm, because I, I, see, I see a lot of what we call farming today more like ranching. So I, don't, I call this place Nine Mile Farm because people understand it, and they get that, and we produce eggs and all. But I really look at it as I have like this little mini duck ranch. The reason I don't call it Nine Mile Ranch and say we have a duck ranch is because people look at you like you're retarded. But if you think about the way I manage this property, I don't manage it like a farm. I'm not a farmer. I'm a rancher. I have a little herd of ducks that I move around and I graze them, and I manage my land with them, and I prove my land with them, and I put in trees all over the place that create shade and silvo pasture mimics, and they produce eggs for me that we sell for a profit. That's really more ranching than farming, you know, because and that gets to split hairs. What you call a place that does the same thing with cattle for milk, a dairy farm or a dairy ranch. I think it's uh, it doesn't really matter, but from a standpoint, if you have a great big piece of land that you graze with cattle, and that's all you do, people always call that a ranch. And when you have a place where people grow grow vegetables, harvest them, and sell them, people always call that a farm. So if you're if you're using primarily a livestock based system, and you're not doing a lot of vegetative production, then to me you're closer to the kind of ranch model. And, and the reason I bring that up again is grazing 15 acres. All you need is the right cross fencing, the right controls, and the right uh, body count of cattle for your biome, and it's relatively easy. Farming 15 acres is a totally different thing. Let it all go to woods and using it as hunting land is simple. So make sure that you have the right motivation for adding the land. You just may want more land to have more land, and that's okay too. But if you're doing it for profit, really analyze what you're doing because I think the number one reason that we see people financially fail as new farmers is trying to farm too much. Where, you know, I mean... Darby Simpson calls himself a farmer, but again, I consider Darby more of a rancher because he's doing pigs and chickens and cattle and turkeys. To me, that's more of a ranching model, if that makes sense. Just something to think about. But again, on getting this seed planted, just have you ever thought about it? And he'll say, no way, I'm keeping a slot dial. Okay, great. But if you ever change your mind, I just appreciate first opportunity. Or I've thought about it. Well, if you ever think about it and you're, you're ever serious about it and you ever you know, kind of want to sell some of it or you need some money or something like that, I'd be interested in this little kind of piece kind of in this area over here. Uh, just you know, before you do it with somebody else, give me a shot at it. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Right? That's a humble way, and that plants that seed. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, I enjoyed your show about the, uh, the edibles that you can plant, which leads me to a question about trees. Uh, do you have an opinion about trees sold by the Arbor Foundation? I ask this because they seem to be competitively priced, and if you pay a one-time fee of 10 bucks, then you can buy from them at a discount for forever, I think. So that was my, my question. Do you have an opinion about Arbor Foundation? And my background on this is I'm planting trees, attempting slowly but surely to plant trees that will do two things. One, give me things I can eat, and two, give me things that will make alcohol for fuel, because I use a lot of fuel. Um, and then I guess the third option is that I'm trying to build 
privacy around my five acres because it's impractical to to build a privacy fence. All right, thanks for all you do. Let me know what you think. Bye. Well, I've never bought trees from the Arbor Foundation, so I, I don't know if they are good quality or not. My, my guess is they're probably great quality. And if that's the case, here's how I feel about it. I don't really care where a tree comes from. I care how much it costs and can they ship it to me and is it a tree I want, is it a good quality? If that's the case, I don't care. I don't even really worry that much about, you know, is it, is it organically grown or whatever? You know, was it sprayed with something? I, I prefer that it was, you know, pulled from the earth by Buddha and handed to me by Jesus and, and blessed by, by the saints of all time and, and just perfect. And I'd prefer that. But in the end, whatever was done to that tree was done to that tree. And when I put it on my property, Whatever's going to be done to that tree forward is going to be under my control. So I, I'm not really worried about that. So if you can get good pricing that you think is better than you can get somewhere else and you like the varieties that are available, because I looked and, frankly, I don't see that many varieties of trees available, but there's some good fruit trees and stuff like that, then buy them for all means. Buy from them. But, you know, really look at if you're going to plant that much, five acres is a lot. Um Places like Lawyer Nursery and Coldstream Farm buying seedling trees is going to stretch your dollar a lot further than any kind of grafted potted trees or something like that. Learning to propagate from seed, and if you're growing fruit, growing something like Antonovka apple from seed, which produces reliably from seed, will be a, a good thing to do. You, you know, there's there's so much opportunity out there to drive your cost down. So so consider that now. A second one, making alcohol. There's two types, two, two types of ways you might make alcohol from, from, from trees. One would be to grow fruit and ferment it and then distill it into ethyl alcohol. Okay. Um, I, I can't see that making a lot of sense. I, I, I think that, uh, that, that fruit would be better making biogas than, than making alcohol fuel. Um, and it would be better as food. It would be better eaten by a cow and turned into meat and milk than it would be. I don't think it practically makes a lot of sense. Another option um, is wood cellulose uh, ethanol production. So actually using wood itself, cellulose, the, 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 the wood material, Uh, to make alcohol. And that's far more complex. And the, the, the studies that have been done, the number one tree that seems to make sense from a standpoint of how fast it grows, how easy it is to produce alcohol from it, how fast it regrows, how much waste product you get relative to product that you get that's more of a timber product, all of that good stuff is just hybrid poplar. Now you can get those anywhere. And if, if you, but I don't think, You know, unless I'm missing something, I don't think cellulose-based alcohol production is something that makes a lot of sense for the home fuel producer. So you would probably do better to figure out how to use trees to produce a crop for cash to buy fuel with than try to produce ethyl alcohol for fuel for your vehicles. Probably one of the best things you can use to produce fuel oil Something you can make biodiesel with is actually a good stand of black oil uh, sunflower. Uh, that's a lot easier to extract. It, it's actually a fairly uh, sustainable crop that can be grown, and dedicating maybe a half acre production of that would give you some good dove hunting and some, some oil. But I don't know how practical that is 
Uh, there's oil seed radish is another product that you can generate oil from that actually is very, very regenerative of the land as well because it's basically daikon. Um, but I don't know how practical any of that is. I really don't. I think this idea that we're going to grow the fuel for our cars in our backyards um, is one of the few places that doesn't really happen with what you'd call decentralization, which I think will solve the majority of the problems that we have in the world today is decentralization. But if you want to produce biofuel in quantity, that's one of the places where a more centralized model does make sense, at least larger scale does make sense. What What's going on with uh, the, I can't remember the name of the cooperative, but there's a cooperative that Mark Shepard up in Wisconsin is part of, and it's turned in from this thing, it was just a couple dozen farmers, it's turned into a huge co-op that sells product all over the country. Well, one of the things they've done is they grow on all of their farms, you know, some of the people grow crops that make sense to make biofuel. And then the co-op employs somebody who drives a truck around and goes out and extracts all of it, hauls all that oil back to a place, that oil gets converted into biofuels, that biofuel then is sold back to the farmers that grew it at cost, because that's how co-ops work. That model works to decentralize production, but get the scale that's necessary. Another thing that's done in that co-op that also produces biofuel is they sell oil to people that make a product, a food product like potato chips, to fry the potato chips. So the farmers produce a crop that creates the oil. The co-op, serving the farmers, extracts the oil and pays them for their product. It then sells the oil to the potato chip factory with a contract that says they get the oil back when it can no longer be used for food production. The oil gets used to produce potato chips. See, we're talking quantity now. We're not talking about going to McDonald's and, and begging for the oil that they dump once a quarter. Okay, so the potato chip manufacturer needs to get rid of the oil. It goes back to the co-op. The co-op produces biofuel out of it, sells it back to the farmers that originally grew it and was were paid for it in the first place, and does so all at cost because the co-op exists to serve its members. I think if we're going to get into growing biofuels on any kind of a scale where it makes sense, this is what we're going to have to do. For Otherwise, if you're doing kind of the 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 the, the, the self sufficiency thing, you have you know quite a bit of land and you're growing a couple acres of black oil sunflower or something like that. You're pressing the heads for an oil and you're using that to use the machinery on the farm, but you're not going to be driving to Philadelphia and back on it. It just I don't think it practically makes sense. We don't get the scale and we get into the same problem I talked about with the the person that wants more land. Why do you want ten more acres? Um, unless you are specializing in what you're doing, when you go up in land, you usually go down in profit. You really do. That doesn't mean you can't have 100 acres, but you need to be focused on managing one or two for actual production. And again, you go back into ranching and there's other opportunities and things like that. All right, let's take another one. Jack, you need a nap. One-touch access for Droid and iPhone. The reason I say this is sometimes Chrome on my Android starts your show over when I've had to pause it for a minute. And i, I got to try to tick around with uh, getting back to where I was. And it's not uh, pinpoint responsive. So you need a nap. You need a nap. You need a nap. You need a nap. One-click access. Thank you. Bye. 
Uh, th that's a call that, generally speaking, if it were an email, I probably would have responded to it with, why don't you shove it up your ass, to be serious. Um, it's so easy for people on the outside to say, you need to do this and you need to do that. Walk a mile in my limping ass shoes for, for a minute, guys. I don't like to be told what I need to do, and I don't think most people do either. Now, here's an interesting thing. We have an Android app. I say it all the time. It's on the website. It says download the TSP Android app here. So this guy wants an Android app, and we have an app. Let me tell you how you get an app. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of development. You don't just crap an app. It doesn't work that way. I actually have an iPhone app uh, being developed by the same individual that set up the TSP business directory, and hopefully we'll have that for you within a few months. I'd like to have an app for iPhone. It's not like it used to be where you just spin one off of some kind of roll-your-own thing and they just let you in and had it. We actually, I actually developed kind of a roll-your-own app for iPhone, and Apple turned it down because it didn't do anything other than let you listen to the podcast and a few other things. And they said, well, we have podcasting, and at the time it was in iTunes, so they denied it. All right, so I can't just make shit because you want it. Um, however, I played this call so you can hear, like, this is what you sound like when you start demanding crap. Um, and I know the guy doesn't really mean it, but, guys, I work my ass off producing this show for you. I don't need to be told what I need. There's me being told, hey, we'd like this, or could you do this, or would you consider this, or do you have one? And then being said, you need, to, you need an app, you need an app, you need an app. What you need to do, caller, what you need to do is think about how you phrase things to other people. And another thing you need to do is start realizing that people can't just roll shit up and shit it out because you want it. But if you'd like an app, go to the site and get the freaking TSP Android app since you have an Android phone. It already exists for everybody else. If you have an Android device, go to the survivalpodcast.com, look at the website, and you will see three columns in the website. There will be one where all the main content is. There'll be a center column with a whole bunch of stuff in it. And then there'll be one with the sponsors, banners, and things like that. You scroll down, you'll see things like how to connect with us on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And you'll see a little thing for Harmony House Dehydrated Foods. You'll see Nine Mile Farm. And you'll see Regenerative Agriculture to join our Facebook group. And then you'll see this picture of Val. Val's the TSP logo. We call him Survive Val, right? And you'll say, uh, you see for the business directory, you'll see Val again. He'll say, the TSP Android app, survive! Click there and download it. Don't tell me what I need. You're lucky you got on the air, and you're lucky you got off this easy. It's, uh, it's an aggravating thing when you're busting your ass on a daily basis for people, and I do bust my ass literally sometimes to produce this show. To have someone tell you what you need to do. I'm just saying. Have a little grace when you ask for things. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Matt in Ohio with a question about sorting coins, uh, sorting silver half dollars. I was wondering if you thought it was worthwhile to do so. Um, thinking about getting into sorting for pre-65 half dollars. I know for a lot of people it seems like a waste of time, but I have the time to do it. So just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Thanks. Have a good one. Um, I'll approach this from two separate ways. Do I think personally for myself that it is worth the time to sit around sorting half dollars, dimes, quarters, anything like that to 
find a little bit of silver and uh, then have to take all of it back to the bank and sell it back to them and then do it again. No, um, I don't. Though you can make a financial case for it, I guess, if you have the time anyway. I did a little research to see, like, you know, what are the, what are people getting by doing this? And, uh, if you're going to do it, it does seem like half dollars are the way to go. Uh, I found one video of a guy that uses a sorting machine and he does this for pennies as well, but you can set it for any weight you want. So he set it to sort dimes. He put 20,000 dimes through it. 20,000 dimes. He got 17 silver dimes. Doing that manually, oh, I, I just can't see it. Um, I also found a guy that specializes in doing it, and I've got videos of both of these for you. You can watch on YouTube if you want. He specializes in doing halves, which is what most people that are doing this today are doing. He went through four boxes, and the best day he ever had. This is like this is not typical. The best day he ever had going through four boxes of silver halves, he got... Eight ninety percent silver and eleven forty percent silver. Of course, forty percent silver was the stuff that uh, uh, the JFKs that were made for the one final year before they went off silver altogether. And on that real good haul, all right. So he said that was worth one hundred and thirty-one dollars and eighteen cents. Of course, that was also a little while ago when silver spot price was about thirty bucks. Silver spot today is like fifteen sixty an ounce or something like that. Call it fifteen bucks to make this easy, and your one hundred and thirty-one dollars just became. 65 bucks. And I know people say that's 65 bucks I didn't have is $65 worth of silver at almost no cost. I mean, what the real cost here would be in money, right? Ignoring everything else like gas and stuff like time, but just in money is $9. You basically bought uh, 65 bucks worth of silver for nine bucks if you did this today and got the same result he did. Here's how that works out you end up with 18 50 cent pieces that you're keeping. Uh, that are worth $9 face value. So you go to the, the bank and you buy a couple hundred dollars worth of half dollars or whatever, you know, four boxes comes out to, thousand dollars worth of whatever, and you get nine bucks out of it. You sell it back to the bank and you get all your money back except for the nine bucks and now you have silver set aside. I get it, but I mean, here's how I look at it. How hard would it be to set up a small business and make $50 an hour? You know, maybe, uh, it would maybe putting in, uh, 20 hours a, a, a month. And then you have money, and if you want to buy silver with it, you buy silver with it. If you want to buy something else with it, you buy something else with it. You have this appreciating asset in a business. It, it just seems to me that it, it gener in general, it would make more sense to take the approach of let's take that time and do some revenue generating activity with it. But there may be people that say, I don't want to. There's people that just say, you know what, it's fun. Like just sorting through all this and you never know what you're going to find. Okay, that's cool. I, I get it. And there's there's more of it left than I thought there was based on the research I did um, for this answer. But it's not a lot. It's not a lot. This stuff's been picked through since 1965. That's when people started pulling the silver out. Was the, the day they stopped putting it in the coins. And, and I remember my grandfather had a huge box of silver coins in the 1980s. And at that point, my grandmother worked as a waitress at a diner. And she would come home and count her tips. And a lot of her tips were in coin. And we would almost, like her big days were like Friday, right? And we, I'd sit down with her and count her tips. And it was just something to do with your grandma. When I was a little kid here, I'm talking about like seven, eight years old. We would almost always find... Uh, a silver dime or a silver quarter. 
like almost every single time. And now it's very, very rare. Uh, and it's been, I mean, if you look at just the timeline there, what, 2016 minus 1965, 51 years, 51 years, roughly? It's been 51 years of people pulling this stuff out. There, there's not a tremendous amount left, but if you can get it, you can get it. I mean, that's, that's fine. Um, so you have to make the, the determination, is it worth it to you? So here's how I would think about it. If you're thinking about doing something like this, go out and buy a box or two, sort through it, and when you're done, determine for yourself if you thought that was worth it. If it was, it might be worth doing again. I mean, I guess it's kind of like going out and, and panning for gold or whatever. You might have quite a bit of time in it for the gold you get, but you got no money in it. And if you enjoy doing it, then you enjoy doing it, and it, you're accumulating wealth on some level. But to me personally, I'd rather find out a way to to generate income with time like that rather than to um, to sort through old coins. But I don't... Like really, like if you notice, I always talk about silver and gold from a pure investment standpoint. You never hear me talk much about numismatics. I'm not a coin guy. It's not my thing. I like I like practical. So I realize that numismatic value is entirely subjective. That a coin could be worth five thousand dollars today, and if economic reality sinks in, that coin might be worth not much more than its underlying metal value. Personally, anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. My question is, I'm considering building a living fence or planting a living fence using uh, American Arbor Vice and various reasonably quick-growing screen-type uh, uh, trees, Canadian hemlock, etc. But aside from the eye, I want to keep people out. Uh, what would be a good plant to plant with those that uh, kind of nasty? Maybe might cut you, poke you, or cause a little bit of pain. Thanks. I mean, if you wanted to plant something thorny along the, the fence on the outside, blackberry, rosa ragusa, plain old-fashioned briars, things like that would all work. But uh, the, the problem you get with there is you're going to have multiple uh, microclimates. So one thing's not going to work everywhere. You're going to have a, a wall of a fence. If you go a four-sided fence that's facing south, north, east, and west primarily, you might have north by northwest or something, depending on how your land lays or whatever. But in the end, you're going to have very different biomes. So you're going to have to work it out what's going to grow on the, on the, the north side of a living fence, right, and probably briars. Uh, just, I mean, stickers like they grow in the woods, right? But it's probably not necessary. Why don't you just grow the fence out of like an appropriate material that makes a really good living fence that's thorny, uh, like Osage Orange. Probably the number one and the lowest cost option you'd have. And you're going to take about five to six years to really establish the hedgerow fence line of this stuff. But all you need to do to do this is go out and find yourself a source of Osage Oranges. Osage Orange, also known as Bodark, is... These trees that produce, they call them a horse apple as well. Uh, it's just a great, big, green, brain-like looking thing. It's sticky. And you go get a bunch of them, and you throw them in a bucket of water in the fall, and they fall apart, and tons of seeds come out of them. And you sort those seeds out, and then you go along your where you want your fence line, and you poke holes in the ground, drill those seeds in the ground, and put them really close to each other. And the first year, since they're so close to each other, they're going to grow straight up as whips. 
And then at the end of the first season, while they're still flexible before they go completely dormant, you're going to bend them over to the ground, bend them back and forth over to the ground in straight lines and weight them down. And then the next season, what's going to happen is they're going to grow lateral branches like new trees straight up. And you start weaving those together. And the thorns are pretty nasty on those. Another tree you could do this with, but it's probably not as easy to do so and not quite as cheap and easy to you know acquire seed for and get it to just grow everywhere is black locust. Black locust will do fine for this, but it doesn't it doesn't do as well laying a hedgerow. Okay? Bodark or Osage Orange was uh, a tree that Thomas Jefferson felt we should grow across the land. And he said that if you used that to make a fence in five years, you had a, a fence that was corn high and hog tight. I mean, it would keep hogs in. If something keeps hogs in, it generally will keep people in. Um, and it is thorny. And the thing about Osage Orange is the, the, the smaller branches are the ones with all the thorns to protect them. And they, they tend to get less and less thorny as your trunk gets bigger and bigger. But if you weave this living fence out of them, you're always getting these small shoots that are covered in thorns. And then you could do whatever you want to increase that. But that's the approach that I would take if I was going to put in living fence where I'm not growing. Like with black locusts, I would use that to grow living fence posts. So you plant a line of them, you tack an insulator to them once they're about you know uh, four or five inches in diameter, and then you run fencing attached to them, either electric or just standoff fence. But if you wanted the actual whole fence to be made out of living material, Osage Orange would be the way to go. Um, if you wanted to take the risk of them becoming invasive on you, and they could, um, honey locust, uh, they'll grow a real fast whip the first year, and you take that same approach I talked to you about uh, uh, using Osage Orange, and you weave that stuff together, and I don't see anybody with a brain trying to crawl through that stuff at all. So, you know, that's the approach to take. In, 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 uh, in Europe, a lot of the hedgerows were done with uh, hazelnuts because you got a, a nut yield, plus you had a really tight hedge, but you didn't have the thorns. So, anyway, you got to make your own decision on that one, exactly what uh, to use. But if you, if you type living fences into YouTube, you'll see plenty of examples of how to do it, a lot of it being done with willow and things like that. You can just take the same approach doing it with any of these more thorny varieties of things. Thanks. Hi, Jack. How do you use how do you plant in beds if you've used an annual cover crop and it's not yet dead in the spring? Uh, details. Last fall, we planted an annual cover crop in all of our raised garden beds, mostly with annual ryegrass and a little pea mix. Uh, we had a rather mild winter, and the cover crop is not yet dead. Um, now it's time to plant, and we're um, plant things in the garden. Our early spring crops. We normally don't till. But the grass created a really thick root system, so it's hard to dig in right now. What do you suggest is the best way for us to go about preparing these beds to plant? Thank you. We love the show. Truthfully, I would take a string trimmer, and I would just trim it really, really low. Um, I would take your garden trowel or whatever, and I would plant, you know, cut out your little hole of sod and plant your plants into that. If you're doing something like beans or whatever, uh, instead of trying to dig a furrow or whatever, it takes it, it depends on. It's, it, I'm going to couch this, but it depends on how big a plot we're talking here. Typical raised beds, you, you're not talking about that big a space, right? So you take something like a Phillips screwdriver and you just make a hole. You don't have to dig a furrow. You make a hole and you drop a bean seed in it. And just be at peace. It's going to grow just fine. 
It's going to grow great. Um, annual rye is not going to make it in the summer. It's just not. So let it be there, and as it dies back, let things take over. And I would probably take this opportunity also to go in there and sow something like Dutch white or New Zealand white clover. I would just scatter sow that and so that there's something to take over for the ryegrass so you actually have a living mulch all through the whole garden season. And I think you'll find it'll it'll do a lot better for you that way, that you'll have a lot less problems. Um, we just had you know Larry on about um, Masanobu Fukuoka yesterday, and his entire method of growing vegetables was to always have this carpet of scatter mulch and, and uh, uh, clover growing underneath it. So that's one way. Now, if you got enough scale that this really is a problem, then I wouldn't have like this big giant, you know, uh, case of butt hurt if you threw a rototiller on it and chopped it open a bit and knocked it back with that, and you could do that. As long as this is an annual rye and not something like a Bermuda or something, if you do that with Bermuda grass, you're going to make your problem worse. You're going to make your problem worse. Now, here's another thing you could do. Go out there and lay down a um, thick layer of cardboard and do a, a mulch layer on top of it and poke through that and plant in, and that will get you back to a nice, pretty mulch surface, and you're not dealing with cutting back grasses as they're growing up and things like that. And Since it's an annual, it'll be relatively easy to kind of choke it out that way. That's another option. It's a bit late this year for this last thing. Um, depending on your zone, you know, where you, when you want to plant your spring crops. So this question just came in this week, so I don't know if you want to plant tomorrow or you want to plant like three weeks from now. Let's say you want to plant three weeks from now. Well, go get yourself a big old black tarp, cover the raised bed with it, uh, weight it down with rocks, let the sun beat on it, and you'll kill that stuff just as dead as you can. Annuals are not tough in that situation. If nothing else, it'll knock them way, way back. Now, you're going to have all that root mass in there, but that's all food for your microbes and your worms. Um, another way you could try this, and I, I've done this and it has worked for me, especially with smaller seeds and what have you. Sow your seed. If you're doing more like a broadcast seed, like for lettuces and greens and stuff like that, sow your seed and then take a scythe and just scythe your grass. And let it fall in place. And then keep it moist until your seeds start to germinate. They'll find soil contact. They'll be harrowed by the thing you think is a problem. It'll grow right up through it. There's, there's all, none of these are right or wrong. They're all about your goals and how much work you want to put in and what you want to success this into long term. All right. Now, lastly, I do not use annual ryegrass as a cover crop. In a annual race bed. That's, that's not something I want to use. I also wouldn't use things like white oat and things like that. I prefer to use clovers, uh, vetches, uh, pea. Pea's fine. Pea, you can just scythe pea, scythe pea down and, and plant into it. You do have some, it's a little easier to get through the sod layer, so to speak. It's a nitrogen fixer. Um, and as soon as you get the heat, it's done. It really is. And if not, you get some peas growing up your annuals and you get some peas. I mean, it's not a big deal. Uh, but ryegrass puts this huge root mass down, which is why it's great for what it does. But it's not generally what I want to use. So I would say in the future, depending on what your goals are, don't use annual rye in a raised bed. Um, other than it's pretty good at 
without competing a lot of perennial uh, weeds that might get in there. So if you're willing to do the other things I talked about, you can keep using it. If you if what you're wanting every year is pretty much have uh, an easier way to plant, get off of the get off of the annual rye and and go to things that are a little more uh, less intensely rooted. Uh, or definitely use less of it. It sounds like what you did is you you, you covered it with annual rye, uh, like you were planting a lawn, and that's going to yeah make a pretty pretty heavy sod layer. Um, another way to handle this is just go ahead and dig it. Don't till it. Just dig it. Cut your sod out in squares. Uh, just go in a couple inches down and just flip it, and flip it over and uh, and plant into that, and you you knock it all, almost completely back with that because again it's an annual. There's no rhizomes last, left down there to regenerate. Uh, but any of those approaches will work. You do what works best for you. Uh, let's take another one. Hey Jack, it's John in Illinois. Uh, last night thought came to my mind. Uh, what about going to the grocery store and using things I'd buy anyways, like garlic and potatoes to put in the ground and grow a garden? I can't think of anything else I might be able to get there that would work for this. Maybe you have some ideas. All right, thanks. Bye. First, there's nothing wrong with doing this. But if you're going to do this, especially with tubers like garlic, potato, and sweet potato would be three great examples that you might do this with, you're going to want to go organic. And it's not because, again, I'm not a huge believer that you need organic seed and things like that. I think how you care for a plant once it actually starts growing is far more important than where that seed or that seed stock or tuber stock came from. Um But the problem with most of your tubers and bulbs, onions, things like that, that you buy at the grocery store is that they're sprayed with a, a, a retardant to keep them from budding out, to keep your potatoes from getting green and starting to grow shoots and things like that, keep your garlic from starting to grow. So a lot of times if you just buy garlic from the grocery store and you plant it, what will happen is nothing. It won't grow or only a little bit of it will grow. Where if you buy an organic product that by its very existence cannot have been sprayed with a retardant, it, it, it's going to grow because it is basically seed. So if you see like organic garlic on sale at the grocery, especially in the fall when you normally would plant garlic, by all means, you know, buy a bunch of it and throw it in the ground in the fall when you're supposed to be planting garlic. Really planting garlic right now isn't the most productive thing that you can do. So, you know, kind of time your things. Where potatoes, right now, great time to plant potatoes. Uh, it's also a great time to be making sweet potato slips, which is where we take a pota sweet potato, we put it in water, it starts to grow shoots, and we slip them off, we root them, and we plant them. Sweet potato is a great thing to grow because not only do you get a tuber yield, sweet potato greens are actually really good, and they're good raw, and they're good sautéed. So I think most people don't realize how much value there is in a sweet potato from a vegetative standpoint. But again, you're going to want to go with organic for that. Other things, um, I've never heard of Jerusalem artichoke being sprayed. So a lot of times if you can find Jerusalem artichoke in any kind of a grocery, and you don't find them in normal groceries, but you can usually grow those. Organic ginger, uh, again, because it's often sprayed with something to retard sprouting uh, and to preserve it if it's non-organic. Uh, but you can grow ginger indoors. You can grow ginger in pots that you just bring indoors in the winter. That's another thing you can grow. Most, couch this, most chili peppers 
The seeds in most chili peppers are fine for growing. Most of your jalapenos are going to be a hybrid variety. They're not going to produce true to type, but if you have a lot of land, you're just scatter seeding. It doesn't hurt to throw them out there, and if you find a good one, then save the seed from that. Um, but most of the things like your habaneros, your uh, Anaheim peppers, your poblano peppers, things like that, those are just basically straight varieties, and they'll reproduce well for me. I have planted seeds from watermelon, and I've grown great big plants. I've never got any really decent watermelon from any of the varieties in the store, but I imagine you could. We've gotten good cantaloupe from planting seeds from cantaloupe. I, I look at it this way. If you have dedicated garden space that you are relying on for food product production, then get seed from known uh, varieties. But if you have like additional space again that you're scatter seeding or just you know you have a food forest you just poking seed in the ground and and you have seed from something at the store throw it in there see what happens it ain't gonna hurt nothing it ain't gonna break nothing and it's not gonna cause any kind of problems organic butternut squash most people that grow butternut squash for production grow lots of it so it's probably not cross pollinated with anything so uh, we've grown great squash from organic butternut squashes uh, organic cucumber. Again, we've we've had pretty good results just uh, you know taking some of the seed out of cucumbers and and honestly even we've had at times where we fed it to ducks or chickens and they've crafted it out and it's grown on its own and it's produced. So what you find is the more fertile you make your ground, the more pop possible these things become, and you start throwing stuff away and it starts growing on its own anyway. Um, again, tomatoes. If you buy heirloom tomatoes, you can get a little bit of you just take it one section. And you have to process tomato seed a certain way, but I'll tell you a way that you you avoid that. Cut a wedge out of an heirloom tomato that you bought from like a farmer's market or whatever. If it's early enough in the year, say somebody's growing them in hot houses or something like that, where you can grow tomato from seed and plant the whole wedge, so the tomato pulp everything's down there. And man, a lot of a lot of places you'll get a tomato yield that year. There's a lot of things you can do. Um, whenever we buy green onions, again we always buy organic green onions. It's one of those. Plants where it never makes sense to not buy the organic because the organic costs so little in a premium. So you buy organic green bunching onions like scallions, and you chop them up. And the little piece on the bottom with the little root lid on it, you cut that last little quarter inch, you stick that in the ground, and it grows. I got onions grown in the ground for two years since we did that with them. We just cut the tops off of them and use them. So that's another thing that you can do that with. A lot of times, grocery stores will actually have onion sets for sale in spring that are for planting. Uh, so keep an eye out for those as well. But pretty much you can try anything, but the guidelines I just give you uh, will be more likely to, to get you a result that you're looking for. But definitely with potatoes and sweet potatoes, if you want to use your grocery store or what have you for seed stock, you want to go with uh, with uh, organic products. Same with garlic. Uh, I have tried it just for the hell of it because I've seen garlic on sale cheap, and I've put in dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, garlic bulbs one time. Not bulbs, but uh, cloves broken apart. And uh, I did that one time. I think I bought four bags of garlic, and it was like two bucks a bag or something. There was like eight heads and I was like the hell with it I'll try it I don't think one of them sprouted not one which is funny because even when you buy non-organic garlic sooner or later it starts sprouting so a way you might get around that is just set it on the shelf and if it starts sprouting uh, go ahead and plant it once it starts to sprout I guess anyway with that that's the last question for the day it's uh, 
It's time to close things up for that. I hope you enjoyed this week. I know that we did get kind of heavy into the ag permaculture stuff this week. I did a show on plants. There was a lot of questions about them today. Uh, and we had Larry Korn on this week. Next week, we're going to go into some things that are more of traditional preparedness things, especially the Tuesday show is definitely going to be that. I'm going to, I don't even know what I'm going to do Tuesday next week yet, but it's going to be one of these shows that's more along the lines of, uh, common sense prepping, uh, for disasters, emergencies, and if the shit hits the fan. Because I want to make sure we always keep a good blend in the show. Tomorrow we have the expert council. Remember, if you have a question for the expert council, Do not call the think lines. Email me with TSPC expert in the subject line. And let me give you the guys that I really could use more questions for. Darby Simpson. I could use more questions for Darby Simpson. Don't ask Darby permaculture questions like what tree you should plant or whatever. Darby's a farmer rancher. We need questions in that vein for him. But I definitely can use more questions. Uh, Michael and Sue Laprezi will be on air uh, this month. They are the, the two folks that do homeschooling and are experts in homeschooling. I could use questions for them. I did manage to get two questions for them for this this coming 30-day period, but I could, I, that's all I have. So they're new to the council. People don't know them as well. I could use more questions uh, for them. I could use some questions for Erica Strauss. She wants to knock out next month's early because she's going to be traveling. So I definitely could use some questions for Erica Strauss. Keith Snow, I could use more questions that are actually cooking questions. I've been getting a lot of, like, knives and food processors and stuff like that. If you have stuff you want actually recipes for, that's what Keith's good at is making us making us hungry, so I could use some questions for Keith as well. I could use questions for Brian Black. I could use questions for everybody, but those folks uh, I, I tend to be a little thin on questions for uh, from time to time. So with that, I am done today. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope you've enjoyed this week. Hope you tune in tomorrow uh, for the Expert Council show. I'm just going to finish up with kind of a fun song today by a guy. I've always liked his music. I liked his music back in the Uh, well, I wasn't around yet, but I liked his music in the 70s and 80s. It was from the, the, the late 60s with Creedence Clearwater Revival, and he went on making music on his own after that band broke up. And that's one of those bands I wish didn't break up as quickly as it did, because as short a time as CCR was around, they produced some amazing music. Can you imagine if they'd been around for like 15 years, what that band might have done? But John Fogarty um, really is a great musician. I saw him recently, I guess a year and a half ago, open up at a Jimmy Buffett concert. He's better than Jimmy, and I love Jimmy. I mean, that man can still just kick ass. Him and Jackson Brown are two guys who have been around forever, and they're just still bringing it whenever they play live. Uh, but in the early 80s, he, re he released an album called Centerfield that... He was actually, the, the, the former members of, the, of CCR tried to sue him because they said the music sounded too much like CCR's music. Well, duh, he was the lead singer. Um, and I'm not going to get into all the politics behind that little feud. But uh, I played one song from this album for you before. It's called I Saw It on TV. I know it's true, so true because I saw it on TV. Today I'm going to play the title track, which is actually track seven on that album, called Centerfield. And I'm not playing that for any big, meaningful thing other than, you know what, it's baseball season. I'm not a big baseball fan, but my son is, and my grandson is becoming a hell of a little baseball player. And it's springtime, and baseball is part of springtime in America. So I just thought this would be a fun song to close with today. Uh, put me in, Coach. I'm ready to play. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. 
or even if they don't.